This is a special podcast from the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors, 2019 Chronic Disease Academy. Dr. Jewel Mullen of Dell Medical School moderates a panel on traversing the data frontier. Panelists include Carol Hallwaller of the Rhode Island Department of Health, Brian King of CDC's National Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion, Dr. May Hudalal of the Connecticut Department of Health, and Karen Gerard of the Oregon Health Authority. The panelists will discuss the practical applications of incorporating traditional and non-traditional data sources into chronic disease prevention work. They will share examples of successful projects from the state health departments of Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Oregon. So as you listen to everyone up here today and think about the role of the chronic disease director in the future, think about where you used to do your work, where you do your work now, and where you will do it in the future. What will you focus on and what you'll lead? And do that with a a very intentional commitment to make all of this talk about health equity central and not just what we talk about right now. Because in my view, a lot of what is at the core of public health is and ought to always remain about health equity, even at the times when people want to attach maybe a partisan meaning to it or question whether or not that's something that we can talk about in government. I took a look at what the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health wrote in 2016 in anticipation of the election, thinking about how many of us in state government also consider that we're an aging workforce, although you all don't look so much that much of an aging workforce out here right now compared to when I was in state government. Because also thinking about health equity gives us a chance to internalize and not just think externally about equity as we think about our workforce, those who we groom, whom we mentor, who we support, who we sponsor, and who ultimately take our jobs. And one of the points that the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health made was that students needed to learn about racism, race, social determinants, and be able to lead in those domains in public health. I was at a meeting a couple of days ago um, with some medical faculty where there was someone who was doing great work and all she kept trying to explain to the other medical education people in the room was that she was working on structures. So you can imagine that a lot of doctors sitting there hearing her talk about structures just didn't understand what she was talking about. And she kept struggling. Well, you know, the structures, the structures that happen in communities and the structures that make people unhappy. And so I really felt for her, so I said, can I help you? And so she handed me the mic. And I said to her, so I said to people, I think what she's trying to say is, she's really trying to get medical, at her medical school to think about the stuff that is responsible for the social determinants. The kinds of things that we say we should talk about, like race and racism or economic inequality. And she looked at me and said, thank you. And I mean, that wasn't bravery on my part. It was just my ability to want to use some language that people understand, but then to put it out there in a way that it didn't become the end of a conversation, but the beginning of one. So as we hear all of the excellent work that's being done by colleagues across the states, I know that implicitly or explicitly underneath whatever they're talking about 
There's also something about social determinants and structures, many different kinds of structures. But as we lead going forward and claim our place as, in the future of chronic disease directors, working more outside of state health with people in communities and other organizations, uh, it will be great for us to be able to have those conversations with them in ways that are very comfortable for us too. I'll stop by just saying in that context that a few days ago my medical school colleagues were debating whether or not there's a difference between social drivers and social determinants. Because I can tell you from the, the healthcare side now, a lot of people in medical schools are proud that they've caught on, that like the social history that they always told us we should take in medical school, I know I'm sarcastic, is really relevant now. And, and so part of what I'm doing as the Associate Dean for Health Equity is really trying to get public health into people's heads and practice in medicine. So I'm always hearkening back to where I know the expertise is. I'm in Austin, Texas. I'm, you know, I can see the state capitol out of my office window. You know, partnership with state health is really important to me. So to be able to help people understand that social drivers technically are addressing a socially related medical need for patients is, are related to, but still not the same as social determinants or structures, is really key. And I think it's a key point that is gonna be underscored in some of what we hear today, because if we medicalize a lot of this stuff that's always gonna be public health, then where we work in the future is gonna be even less out of our hands. And the leadership that you all provide is showing how much it still needs to be in our hands. And knowing a lot about the work that's being done in Rhode Island, I think it's gonna be great to hear you first. To go ahead and, and talk, so I'll stop there. Good afternoon. On behalf of our awesome Director of Health, Dr. Nicole Alexander Scott, who is really moving us um, from transactional to transformational public health and health equity, I just wanted to acknowledge her because she is such a champion and has really pushed us to think about public health population health, and advancing health equity. So I'm going to do a quick 10-minute presentation, and I am going to fly through this so there's plenty of time for the rest of our speakers. The U.S. spends more on health care per capita than any other nation. But as this slide shows, we are not seeing a correlated return on those investments through increased life expectancy at birth. In this version of the previous slide, this one really shows a little better where we fall as a nation in life expectancy among other developed nations. And the general assumption is that health and health care in America is among the best in the world. But as this shows, we fall towards the back of the pack internationally. 
Although there are a variety of factors that contribute to life expectancy and population health, especially the correlation of cost to outcome, one that we in public health feel is most compelling is the correlation between social service investments and improved population health. The Trust for America's Health estimates that for every dollar spent on prevention, there's a $5.60 savings in societal costs associated with poor population health. Social service investments are a good proxy measure to understand the priority that a country puts on these population health investments. And we can see here the U.S invest heavily in treatment, but far less than other nations in social service supports for the community. The reason that we believe there is such correlation between social services and health outcomes are the factors that determine population health outcomes, the physical environment, social and economic factors and health behaviors. Individual decisions determine approximately 80% of population health outcomes. Clinical care only makes up 10 to 15%. So another way to think about this that I feel resonates with people outside of the world of public health is this. Where does the average person spend most of their time? In the doctor's office, in the hospital? No, they spend it at home and work or in school. We exist outside of the clinical environment and so do the majority of drivers of our health. So armed with this information, the Department of Health has been realigning how we do public health in Rhode Island. The three leading priorities of our department demonstrate this shift in strategic thinking and core to that vision is the development of strategies to address the social determinants of health. In addition to addressing the social, economic, and environmental conditions, we aim to achieve these improvements by focusing our efforts through a health equity lens and ensuring access to quality health services, especially for the most vulnerable populations. The term social determinant of health is our public health jargon used to refer to social, environmental, and economic conditions that represent the primary drivers of the 80% of population health. The phrase and subsequent determinants are not universal across all states and systems. And although public health practitioners have for years been collecting and publishing data on the number of health conditions and concerns, there are really few systems to collect and compare the impacts on topics like housing, food access, and how they impact population health. To address this, we undertook a two-year-plus process of engaging our partners across Rhode Island to, be to better understand what these conditions were and what data exists um, to measure them. These indicators are finally confirmed, and I wanted to share this to show how we are approaching this in our state. Getting to local data is incredibly important because we didn't just want to know what's happening and to whom, 
but also where and why. The reason the where is so important to us goes back to our three leading priorities and what we've realized over the course of the past 10 to 15 years is that place really makes a difference. And I know you've all heard this before, and so I'm going to move us along so that I can share with you what our model is. To achieve this in Rhode Island, we recognize that we were missing an essential component to take action, which was infrastructure that was reflective of the community. So when we looked at making investments to improve social, environmental, and economic conditions that drive health outcomes, we found that services and support infrastructure at the community level was driven by the funding priorities at the state and national level. Additionally, the voice of the community was more often than not a secondary consideration, which meant the services and policies being implemented were not informed by the needs of the recipient. So in order to address the barrier, the Department of Health launched the Health Equity Zones Initiative. I personally believe it's a movement, and I hope you will too. Or as we call it affectionately, HES. In 2015, we began building an infrastructure in communities across the state that we could partner with to drive change based on the needs, the barriers, and the assets that the community felt were most important to them. We currently have nine health equity zone collaboratives based in and defined geographically across the states. These vary from neighborhood collaboratives, sometimes street to street, all the way up to towns and also counties, working together to, to address community systems integration strategies. It's important to call out that these nine health equity zones are working to address the needs of their communities from within. In developing the HES, we did our best to structure the initiative in such a way that investments and priorities would align the work of the communities with that goal. And our partners spent the first year building or expanding a collaborative, reflective of the diversity, the diverse and the needs of that defined community, using an assessment to create an action plan to address their community most critical needs. And throughout this process, we tried to be as flexible as possible to allow for community to define the needs and the priorities. This slide is a visual representation of the process taking in the first year and how we move from inception to action. Prior to the first year, we transitioned to executing demonstration projects called CHOOSE, Community Health and Wellness. But these focused on addressing one or more priorities identified in the community in collaboration with the community. And while it was a difficult transition, it was important that we began to shift our thinking and actually authentically engage the community in the work. And we did this through braided funding, through maternal child health prevention block grant funding, 1305, 1422 funding, Office of Minority Health funding, state funding, and other federal programs. I'm going to skip this slide for the sake of time. 
What this slide has are a few, I'm sorry, the last point on the project infrastructure that's important to note. Yes, did we push our federal funders? You bet, we did. And believe me, CDC asked us plenty of questions about what is this model? What is the impact? What is the return on investment? But you know what? We thank them today because they gave us that flexibility to braid this funding and to be able to invest in communities. And now we're working on the sustainability plan and we are about ready to fund four or five new health equity zones in our state, which will make a total of about 14 or 15. So everybody wants, oh, thank you. This slide has a few highlights of the impact that the HES collaboratives are beginning to have. And there are other positive impacts too, like passing complete street ordinances, employing community health workers and peer recovery coaches and practices to make the community and clinical linkages bi-directional. I have several other examples, but I don't want to take up all the time bragging about what the Rhode Island Department of Health is doing and using our health equity lens. So in closing, what I wanted to say on behalf of our director and our hardworking staff and my colleagues who are here, that it takes communities need sustainable investments with flexible funding to drive lasting change. We can braid together the funding. We're never going to have funding falling out of the sky to fund this work. We have to be bold and innovative and do something different because adopting innovation and these kinds of approaches and becoming part of the movement is how we're going to succeed together. So thank you. Okay, wonderful. So I am Brian King with the CDC Office on Smoking Health. Um, I don't have a presentation, so I'm gonna wing it. I'm feeling this Sally Jesse Raphael vibe with this full <laughs> member panel, so I'm going to carry it. Um, so I'll office preface that I don't have any prepared remarks, so these are gonna be really good or really bad, but either way, you're gonna be thoroughly entertained. <laughs> so after hearing some of the conversation, a little bit of the conversation from the earlier uh, session, um, I really want to build upon this, this whole health equity and, and data translation to practice theme. Um, and so as we were talking about it, it kind of got me to thinking of my, my uh, paternal grandmother, um, who if she was still alive, she'd be pushing 115. Um, and uh, so she lived through it all, and she was a champion of what she called human rights. And so she was a strong advocate of, you know, she was a suffragette. She lived through the civil rights movement in the 60s, you know, the 80s movement in terms of, you know, sexual orientation and gender identity. And whenever these kind of new things um, you know, came to her recognition, what she would always say to me was, don't behave like you live in a cave. Times change and so must we. And so she was a champion of this fact that we're always evolving. There's always going to be this push to be innovative, to be at the cusp, to be the visionary vanguards instead of those dated dinosaurs. And so it's something that's always kept with me throughout my, my public health career, which it's been about 15 years. I know you look
look at me and you see this wonderful skin and you think that I just must be a fetus. But yes, I've been doing this for a decade and a half, shortly after I emerged from the womb. Um, and, and so, you know, I keep this, um, you know, with me as I do particularly tobacco control work. And it's been very important in recent years as we've seen the surge in e-cigarettes and particularly the phenomenon of, of a jewel um, with the past couple of years. And so unless you've lived in a cave, uh, to keep with that theme, I, I'm sure, um, you know, you've, you've heard of this issue of e-cigarettes. And it's really something um, that has kicked us in the pants in terms of reinforcing the importance of, of public health and particularly chronic disease um, being very nimble, being very visionary. Um, and almost adopting more of a communicable disease paradigm in terms of our, our response to issues. Um, and it also has implications for how we address public health policy and, and practice and, and research. And so I'm going to do a little bit of a retrospective of where we were with the e-cigarette epidemic and, and then where we are and kind of how that evolved over time and got our thinking in terms of translating research to practice, but also considering this lens of, of health equity, because the populations that we were considering were very different from what we've traditionally seen in tobacco control. So the Cliff Notes versions here is in 2007, e-cigarettes entered the US marketplace. Um, and we didn't start to see a lot of, of talk about them until around 2009, 2010. And we started to put questions on our surveillance systems at the national, the state, and the local level. But I'll be the first to admit that our traditional surveillance is absolutely glacial. You will be sitting there watching the grass grow, waiting for the data come in. And e-cigarettes was a very volatile, rapid issue that really came up very quickly among kids. It wasn't until 2013 that we saw that, that increase in use in a single year. Um, and we were using school-based National Youth Tobacco Survey, which is, is annually. Um, and so we weren't getting that sub-annual intel in terms of what was happening. And so very early on, we realized that we had to be nimble. And we almost adopted that communicable disease paradigm of the vector agent host. And the vector was very much the tobacco and e-cigarette industry. Uh, the, the agent of was, of course, the product. Um, and then the host was the user, and we realized that we had to have that bridge that intersection in a very mindful way that we hadn't traditionally done in chronic disease. And so we looked to very rapid response methods of getting data. And so we looked beyond that traditional surveillance. We started doing web panel surveys, which were pretty darn good in terms of validity and representation. And they weren't replacing traditional surveillance. We need traditional surveillance, but it was that complement that got us that subannual data. We looked at retail sales data, um, which was instrumental to identifying Juul. We saw Juul was coming before the school-based surveys picked it up because we knew that the kids had been surveyed before the sales data really started to uptick. And they started an uptick in the summer of 2018. And so what we think happened was, well, we surveyed the kids in 2017 and then they went home for summer break and they started, they went to camp, they went on YouTube, they learned about Juul, and then they came back the next year. And so we knew in 2018 we were gonna see that skyrocketing rate, but we were well prepared because the sales data showed the uptick in Juul sales before then. And you can get that data at the weekly level. So it was instrumental to have that rapid response intel. And we also looked to social media. We looked to big data. We looked to non-conventional mechanisms to give us that intel that we needed. And so how did that help? Well, what's get measured gets done. And so once we had the data, we could effectively leverage it for public health policy planning and practice. And that's really been the bread and butter of tobacco control for a half century. We have the luxury of over a half century of science showing us 
what works, and so we could build on it with this rapid data collection that could really help inform what we were doing. I mean, we also had a lot of hurdles. You know, and the health equity issue was really important because if you look at the disparities for e-cigarettes, it's the complete opposite of the paradigm we had been using. The people who were using it was affluent white males. It, in terms of the, the youth demographic, it was not the demographic we were traditionally uh, used to, to working with, but we used the same underlying paradigm of health equity to ensure that we broached that in a meaningful and impactful way. And so we, we broached in terms of, of informing evidence-based policy at the national, state, and lo local level, which was very instrumental. Um, we weren't reinventing the wheel, we were just greasing a squeaky wheel um, to ensure that all key players were fully informed. Um, and we also updated our research and surveillance because we we knew we needed that data to not only inform the work that we were doing, but also to evaluate it. And that was very key in terms of making sure that we had those um, different uh, surveillance systems in place at that acute level to inform um, the, the policies and practice that we're informing. Um, and also, very critical was engagement of other partners. And again, it wasn't those traditional partners. We didn't want to behave like we were living in a cave. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was really instrumental to, to look at folks outside of our traditional paradigm. And a nod to the folks in, in uh, Minnesota who immediately when we saw these youth epidemic increases in e-cigarettes started looking to other sectors, particularly education, knowing that this was a key leverage point if we were going to capitalize on this opportunity. And so while everyone else was focusing on the negative of we've got an epidemic of e-cigarette use, as you know what the Surgeon General called an epidemic, um, which I think is a very important thing. I always tell people that you know uh, the word epidemic is the epidemiologic equivalent of the F word. You only use it when you mean it and you want impact. And so I had a very terse conversation with the Surgeon General about, now you're going to do this and we can back you up, but it's going to be very big. Um, so, you know, we went out on this, the whole, you know, notion of the epidemic, but we needed, you know, to back it up in terms of, of partners. And it was very instrumental in terms of, of working very carefully to engage folks that we otherwise would not have done. Um, and that included everyone from, you know, education to the schools um, to various other health organizations, keeping in mind that it's not just pediatricians, it's not just, um, you know, the, the frontline clinicians, but there's other entities that can really come to the front lines on this issue. And that's ultimately where we coalesced in terms of, of, of working on you know, this issue um, and, and addressing it in a meaningful and, and an impactful way. And, and I think, you know, to our credit, we, we really focused on the, the positivity. And of course, you've got an epidemic, and you can say that there's something negative, but I like to reverse it to folks. And we learned a hell of a lot um, from this situation over the past 10 years in terms of having dialogue with people that we otherwise never would have had discourse over if e-cigarettes would not have hit the market. There were people considering tobacco control policies that otherwise would not have if e-cigarettes wouldn't have entered through the market, and it also kicked us in the pants in terms of our surveillance and reevaluating: are we really doing the best that we can in terms of our surveillance and practice? You know, we can do things quicker. We can do them more efficiently. We don't need to replace our standard surveillance, but we sure as hell can complement it in a very impactful and meaningful way. And so, you know, I always look to the silver lining on this issue, um, and, and I think that we've really done a commendable job. We certainly have a lot of work to do. You know, e-cigarettes have been the most commonly used tobacco product among kids in this country since 2014, and we've got 21% of high school students using these products, and it's even more exacerbated by the issue of, of Juul, um, which uh, you know, has introduced new types of nicotine called nicotine salts, which makes them even more addictive. So basically what the industry does was they lowered the pH of the nicotine, and what does that make it? It makes it more um, acidic, and that's going to mean that it's going to go down a lot easier. So that makes it very concerning for youth, because they can take a lot, a lot more nicotine at higher levels and a lot easier. And so this whole phenomenon of Juul has 
really been something that's kicked us in the pants to really implement those, those visionary vanguard principles and ensuring that we are far ahead of the, the epidemic as we can in terms of making sure that our data, our information and messaging, and our partners are effectively informing public health policy planning and practice. Dr. Talal? My role here is to be a reactor. And what, what I wanted to do is actually react not just to what the comments we heard on this panel, but also to some of the uh, items that we discussed in the, in the previous panel. And before I do that, I just want to appreciate how important it is to reflect on some of the comments that were made in the earlier panel about placing this in the context of history and uh, reflecting on how in, in our drive to get better and more data and how to use it appropriately, how they enter into algorithms, there's an overlay of uh, kind of the history of, of racial injustice and uh, social injustice that is, that is part of that conversation. Uh, I'm reminded of an article I read a few months ago about how algorithms actually can inadvertently be programmed to have racial bias. So there's something that we really have to keep in mind uh, in this drive towards the, the assimilation and processing of big data. Um, so when I was talking to Gene and we were organizing this panel, our job as reactors was to bring this back to earth <laughs> and seeing what specifically we can do in the state health department context, given what we've heard so far today. Uh, so I'll reflect a little bit on that. Uh, so, I, and this applies not just to chronic disease directors, uh, but also to many of the staff and the programs that are, that are represented here. So when we think about new data, big data, new data sources, I think it's important each state for somebody uh, in the chronic disease unit, it could be the chronic disease director, it could be one of the epidemiologists, to take a systematic look in their specific state at what the landscape is in their state with respect to uh, efforts and availability of claims data, whether there's an all pairs claims database that's available to access. Uh, the status of efforts as well as the ability to access health data from health information exchange, uh, and uh, which may include not just electronic medical record data from you know, the, the, the clinical site of care, but also pharmacy data, uh, lab data, uh, and, uh, and other, other you know, sources that feed into a health information exchange. And once someone becomes an internal expert as to the specific local landscape of that data, then it's important to raise the right questions with the leadership uh, in your agency about what would we need to do to be ready to work with that data? Do we have the right data analyst on, on staff, the right epi capacity? Uh, do we need additional information technology staff, data scientist staff, to be able to really work with that data? And I think that's another important question to ask, and that's almost like a leadership level question. But often it's appreciated when those questions bubble up from the ground up rather than something that's determined at the high strategic level or a high administrative level, where uh, often as those who are working at the higher level know that there's many other uh, balls in the air and requests and, re and reactions that one, one is uh, tasked with. So in 
Or again, we're a completely integrated uh, chronic disease and health promotion unit. So asthma, arthritis, tobacco, alcohol, another drug, uh, cancer. And both of Carol and Brian's comments make me think about that you both touched on the need for sustainable, flexible funding so that we can be responsive when we are facing a new threat, whether it's uh, uh, menthol tobacco, which is not a new threat, uh, but using e-cigarettes to talk about menthol and its, its long long-lasting effects on our communities, um, using the legalization of marijuana in Oregon to talk about, you know, to bring a new angle as we talk about exposure to secondhand smoke and, the, and marketing and uh, placement of um, stores and products in our communities and the relentless marketing, um, cheap flavored products that um, addict us and uh, cause great harm. We could not do this work um, if we were not so integrated and able to, to braid our funding to work with our communities to help prepare them for these very difficult conversations that take many years to uh, develop the capacity to have data, to look at our data, to um, think about what's missing, what story we want to tell with those data, and to develop the leadership abilities to uh, confront some very powerful industries that would like us to continue talking about uh, individual health behaviors rather than what these industries are doing to our communities and how uh, the, the long-term health effects on our communities. So that's what just really strikes me about uh, today's conversation is is when in Oregon, and I'm sure it's true in many of your states, the categorical way that we're largely funded for public health creates some silos that make this work difficult to form those trusted relationships with communities that are most affected by health disparities and, and to, to get them the data and hear from them what they would like to know more about so that they can tell their own story and we can have a powerful voice that is there to, uh, to counteract and, and um, not let the industries speak for, for our citizens. So um, I, I just think of sustainability, flexibility, and, and, under, and having communities have access to their own data Tell us what's missing. Tell us what we can do to, to get more data so that they're able to, uh, to raise their voices is, is something that doesn't come when you get a, a small categorical bit of funding to do a very specific project. So anything that we can do in public health so that we can ensure that communities are at the right tables, they are able to, um, to join the conversations and be part of it is critical to this long-term, very long road that we're we're all in. Listening to you all and just hearing Karen's summary made me think this. I know a lot of us, and probably most of us, walk around reminding ourselves that we can't lobby and we have to be careful about the ways in which we advocate so that we don't feel or look like we're lobbying. But this conversation, nevertheless, as everyone has talked about partnerships, is such a reminder of how our our effective partnerships also arms people to do the lobbying that we can't do and some of the advocacy that we can't do. And 
Um, I don't know anybody who works in public health who just walks around feeling happy all the time because they're just supported all around and all the money is there and people will just want to hear them after they see them coming. But, but my reaction to what you said is that you can work your power even if you don't feel like you have any authority. And some of what you all have just presented is reminders of that. I really, I really think that it is. And, and I think that is the case no matter what state you come from. I just sat here and looked down the line and so we have what I refer to as the slivers of the United States represented and CDC. Because we have Oregon, we have Connecticut, and we had Rhode Island. And I used to work in New England, in two different states. So some people could also be saying, oh yeah, but they work there. I work in Texas now. And it's legislative session, so I'm getting exposed to things that I haven't experienced before. But I, I don't go to work every day thinking things are impossible. So, you know, I think I wanted to just go back to Brian for a minute and then have all of you all reflect on that notion. Am I, am I wrong that you can work your power or is, can you feel that there's some truth to that? No, I would absolutely agree. I think there's a great truth to that. You know, I, and I think that it's not only, you know, just sitting at, you know, coming from, for me, at the federal government. I think it's very easy to sit on a federal perch and, and pontificate, to, you know, to what, pe what people should do. But I think that there's definitely that sense of, of, of empowerment and, you know, I'm reminded of the, the one quote, I think it was an HIV advocate, that was like, go without hate, but not without rage. Heal the world. And it's like, get that rage in you and, and with the resources that you have um, and really galvanize the base to work at, at, at whatever level you, you're at. And I think that we're in a very good place right now to really be enraged about a lot of things. Um, but we really need that, that passion and that wherewithal and, you know, find a way. If there, there isn't an immediate way, you know, resources are a problem everywhere. Um, but I think being very, you know, visionary about, you know, what, uh, you know, the different hurdles and parameters are um, that, that you're facing and, and, and finding unique and strategic and visionary ways to get around there irrespective of where you are across the country is very important. Well, I want to set the record straight that CDC did not give us permission, so I do want to say that um, because that is on record and I just wanted to correct that. But what they did do is they did allow us to um, really be innovative, um, especially we... I, if you all remember Dr. Frieden, the former CDC director, and his, his equity pyramid, well, what we did is we used that equity pyramid and we applied an equity lens. And that is the framework that we're using to do this work. And it doesn't matter if you have local health departments or if you don't. Why can't the local health departments be multi-sector partnerships that you insist that they have to have citizens involved in planning and implementing the work that you do every day? I mean, you have that power. Power is in the eyes of the beholder, as far as I'm concerned. I stood up and gave testimony before so many tobacco industry lobbyists in front of the House Financing Committee, and I was kicking myself when I was leaving there saying, why didn't I say that? Why didn't I say this? And then one of the vaping companies pulled me aside and said, can I teach you about vaping? I mean, I just want you to understand what vaping is. And I said to him, you know what, my sister tried to quit smoking by vaping. He said, oh yeah, how'd she do? I said, she died of lung cancer at the age of 43. That's power. 
That's letting them have it back. It's not always about lobbying in the way. It's making them feel what we feel because we're seeing people not having the right access and vulnerable populations over and over again experiencing the same thing, history repeating itself. Power is in the eyes of the beholder. That is a powerful story because you, you told a story. And I think that when we are able to work with communities, have that trust, get them that information, they tell the story that no industry can, um, or that make it very difficult for the industry to continue having the same conversations that they're having within our state house. And, and the public health role is finding out what those data are, helping to, to get that information, to help those communities set up so that they can tell their own story. And, and like you said, making sure that they're part of those conversations is critical. And, and I just, I, that is going to take a lot of time, a lot of investment, and a lot of flexibility because our priorities are not necessarily the priorities of that community at that particular time. And, um, Unfortunately, the nature of funding makes that very, very difficult relationship to enter into, and so it's necessary to have that, that flexibility to uh, be able to develop that trust. I'm really pleased that in Oregon, they, there is a bill being considered right now to have long-term funding for what we call regional health equity coalitions, so it will be more of a sustainable, flexible source of funding so that they can continue those conversations. But it took many years of working very hard with our project officers and uh, uh, to help, again, to show how this investment is going to help build something that will result in outcomes um, down the line for them. Uh, but it is, it is not a three to five year grant that is going to get you there. So uh, the, only, the only comment I have there is that I think we often severely underestimate the extent of influence that may, we may have. I don't know if I necessarily call it power. It is power to, to some degree. Uh, if you are able to get the right audience uh, with, with decision makers and explain uh, your expertise and your uh, um, reliance on data and evidence uh, as rationale for the ideas and approaches that you're promoting, uh, that's often a breath of fresh air for folks because they're often bombarded by predictable interest and interest groups. So there is power in that, that aspect of our work. Um, I, I have questions for Carol, so can I ask one? <laughs> so, this, this is me exercising my power, because I have this and I'm on the stage. Uh, so for, 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 for selfish purposes, but also to I'm willing to facilitate the data conversation piece. The, um, the health equity zones uh, seems to be a model that we're, in Connecticut, we're, we're not quite following that model, but we have something called the HEX, which is Health uh, um, Enhancement Communities. <laughs> So there's so many flavors of these, but we're, uh, what we're trying to implement is HEX. And uh, it will most likely rely on this braided funded approach. Uh, my, my question is, um, what, 
what are the data that you're using to hold the community collaboratives uh, responsible or accountable uh, for achieving those outcomes? Uh, and are you able to get those data sources granular enough on the local level so that gives you reliable estimates over time to measure their true uh, program level performance and ultimately help outcomes uh, that are hoped to be achieved through that model? I think what's the beauty of the health equity zone uh, uh, model, Dr. Dalala, is that Surprisingly enough, we always talk about the data like it's only at the state level. Well, one of the first things that these health equity zones have to do is come up with a community needs assessment. Let me tell you, our communities are full of data. They have data we don't even know about, for crying out loud. Talking to your communities about the data and what they have, coupled with the data that we have at the statewide level, and all the innovation that we heard today working at sales data, looking at cigarette sales uh, data, look at, looking at the pharmaceutical data. I mean, if we combine all the data that we really have in our states, this room would be full of data. But one of the things I would like to say is in terms of capacity, we don't always have in-house capacity for the analysis. And I think that we had talked about this a little bit with data scientists. But something that our director um, has done in Rhode Island is working with our academic institutions. So we have 11 colleges and universities in Rhode Island, Brown University, Providence College, Bryant University, many. And they are so rich with resources, and I don't mean financial, I mean partnership resources. So combining our local communities with the data that they have, the data that we have at the statewide level and other data that we can get from other partners like housing, transportation, the planning department, um, uh, the department of business regulation, uh, taxation, there are so many partners. And then coupling them with academic institutions where you don't have the capacity, maybe in-house, it has been effective for us. And yes, of course, there are reporting and all of those things that the HES is, um, and I'd be happy to share any of those tools with you. I'm just gonna say this and then wanna pass the mic out there. I thought that was an interesting question because you said you work through influence. And then you talked about holding communities accountable. You chuckled. And so that, that just made me think about the different ways in which we do our work um, and goes also back to that notion of social determinants versus social drivers. Because some of the outcomes that we're asking communities to, to demonstrate, maybe not in Connecticut, um, are medical outcomes. Whether or not our interventions already um, bent the needle on things that are so rooted in so many complex issues, including stuff like access to medical care once again. And, and, and so much of what you put up in the framework that Rhode Island demonstrates stratifies you know, social determinants and where you work in so many different ways. And then you talked about data from places like housing. So, um, I just point that out because, once again, you know, we, we all get to ask ourselves, based on what we're leading and where we get to contribute, what is, what is it that we're really being asked to do and help? 
and where along the way, as we have many measures of sort of health slash medical outcomes, improving community well-being is about so much more and so much more. So even then going back to Dr. Frieden's public health impact pyramid, uh, looking at the difference between a policy system environmental change and changing the context is another part of it. So just a comment, but a reminder for all of us that even as we get really steeped in our own work, we might lose focus on exactly what it is we're trying to do and what we're asking people to partner with us. For more podcasts like this or for more information about the Academy, visit chronicdisease.org.